we are going to continue, we are continuing our study in Ephesians this morning. We find ourselves in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Actually, the, the passage goes on further, I think, to verse 22 or 23. This morning, we're going to, 22 that is, this morning we're going to specifically be looking at verses 11 through 13. In our sermon today, I, I plan to make it through our outline, which means that we'll make it through these, these verses, but I want to get, tell you up front that much of this sermon will be focused on giving us a biblical understanding or a biblical background of what Paul is trying to convey. So we're in for, I think, some heavy lifting, so I hope that you'll be patient today as I think through this, uh, this passage and help give us some background to understand it. But I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that it will be worth it in the long run. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning and praise your holy name. Thank you that we can sing, come together, that we come together in, in worship, that we can sing songs that are biblically correct, that are theologically that help us understand the character of who you are. Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning. We thank you that we can worship not only in song, but we can worship in prayer, we can worship in, in reading your word, we can worship in preaching, we can worship you as we hear the word explained, and we can also worship you by giving praise you, thank you this morning that we can gather. Father, may our fellowship be sweet around your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Mr. Gorbachev said, tear down this wall. President Ronald Reagan spoke this famous phrase during a speech given in West Berlin, Germany in June 1987. Berlin sits in East Germany, which was controlled by the Soviets after in the aftermath that, that is, of World War II. This, this was during the Cold War. After World War II, the city was broken up into quadrants controlled by each of the former allies, including the Soviet Union. Now, West Berlin adopted capitalism, while the Soviet-controlled area adopted communism. So, therefore, the Soviet-controlled area actually began to lag behind the West Berlin area. This, this left East Berlin in, in an awkward situation because many of their bright young people began to leave the communist regime and start living and working in West Berlin. This so-called brain drain accelerated the slide in East Germany, and therefore the communists decided to restrict travel from east to west. Initially, they formed a barrier using barbed wire and strategically placed guards. Eventually, they erected an elaborate wall system which heavily, was heavily fortified to stop the flow of east Berliners to the west. Now, if you understand what's happening here, Berlin actually was encompassed by the, 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 the whole of East Germany. And so West Berlin was like an island in East Germany. 
Now, by the time of Reagan's speech, most people were familiar with the image of an impenetrable concrete wall which separated entire families and was a stark reminder of the differences between the communist Soviet, the Soviet government and American capitalism. Over the ensuing years, most people associated Reagan's speech with the fall of the Berlin Wall. But the wall was not actually torn down until 1989, a couple of years later. Speech actually, at the time, received very little media coverage. And there was there is debate even now as to how much influence, if any, the speech had in actually bringing the wall down. During its final years, several people contributed to the wall's demise, including a couple of performers. It had concerts, David Hasselhoff and Bruce Springsteen both performed concerts in West Berlin, or actually in Berlin, which galvanized support for tearing down the wall. But Reagan's speech, nor Springsteen's concerts, spelled the end of the wall. The end actually came in, on November 11, 1989, due to a mistake by a local official. This local official made an announcement at the end of a press conference that the long-standing travel restrictions would be lifted. After the announcement, a reporter asked for a timetable for this to happen, and the official had actually just returned from vacation, and he said, immediately. He was unaware of the, of the actual timetable. That evening, the local news stations reported this startling news, and in response, thousands of East Berliners descended upon the wall, <coughs> completely overwhelming the guards, who decided to stand down and just simply open this. In an amazing fashion, the wall came down. Now, the Berlin Wall is just one of many physical walls which separate, built to separate humans. I remember traveling through El Paso, Texas when I was a kid, and from I-10, if you've ever been to El Paso, you can actually look over into Juarez, Mexico. I was fascinated because I was looking across the river which formed a border and it was like looking into a completely different world. It's almost a, a third world country and we were sitting in a first world country of the United States. Well, that's the nature of barriers. Many times our cultures form barriers with one another which seem impenetrable even though they may not be physical. They seem impenetrable, even though they aren't physical. These are usually cultural barriers, though they are mostly formed. They are mostly formed based on where we are from, or even the language that we speak. But we can separate based on ideology, right? Such as political or religious beliefs. Sadly, many times these barriers are formed simply based on our appearance. I grew up in. Rule southern, the rural southern United States, as most of you have, or many of you have, I should say, post-integration and witnessed many, many prejudices based on the color of the person's skin. Tragically, as you well know, this is one of the tragic legacies of our country. We're still arguing today on how to deal with the heartbreaking legacies of slavery and racism. As you well know, we've even formed barriers in the church. In the church, we may separate based on language barriers many times. This doesn't make sense, right? Some churches even have multiple services based on languages, based on language. We may also separate based on theological or doctrinal viewpoints. 
different denominations formed based on doctrinal convictions and the philosophy or a philosophy of ministry focus, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Our doctrine and our practice. Sometimes these these doctrinal separations are, are for the best. They keep the church pure. Sadly, though, we can reflect the culture and separate based on even things like appearance. I wish that I could stand before you and say that racism has never affected the church, but that absolutely is not the case. Tragically, some of the heroes of our faith have even been slave owners. This tragic legacy has led us in great difficulty in many of our denominations. denominations. Just this past summer, the Southern Baptist Convention passed Resolution 9, which tries to address the legacy of racism in Southern Baptist churches. As you know, most Southern Baptist churches are located in the Southern United States and have a legacy of, of racism to deal with. This Resolution 9 was intended to denounce uh, the, the theory of the critical race theory and intersectionality, these ideologies, and, and it, it was intended to hold accountable those who are espousing it, especially within the Southern Baptist institutions. What you have to understand is critical race theory has evolved from the legal realm as a method of doing critical analysis of race and racism, highlighting the idea that race is ingrained in the fabric and system of every, that is racism, is ingrained in the fabric and system of, of our American society. Ultimately, the idea here, then, is that uh, the idea of these theories is to identify oppressed groups based on sources of oppression, such as race, class, gender, or sexual orientation. As such, this is what I'm getting to. As such, these theories highlight differences between people, creating further barriers. Make sure you understand that. These systems highlight highlight differences between people, creating further barriers. Now, what you have to understand is Resolution 9 in the Southern Baptist Convention was rewritten and adopted, including the language which legitimizes critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools which can be used in the context of Southern Baptist churches. Beloved, that's horrible. And I believe because of this, we're at a crossroads in the church. We're at a crossroads in the church. Are we going to trust sociological constructs which seek to identify and sharpen the focus on our differences, create barriers between us? You know, one of which you understand, these tools have been used in, in colleges and universities with devastating results. And we're going to bring this stuff into the church, Right? We're going to have to decide if we're going to trust in those things or if we're going to trust in God and His Word. Whether we'll trust in the gospel that has the power to reconcile us to not only to God, but to one another. Now, as you may expect, the Bible is not silent at all about this. God has much to say about the barriers between us and has much to say about the solution to our problem, namely our sin problem. Sin is the source of most of our division. You do realize that, right? You see, sin is a problem with 
all mankind. As a matter of fact, this problem actually started in the Garden of Eden before there were any nations. Nations didn't exist when sin came. When sin entered the world, there was no such thing as races or nations. It was mankind. It was one race, the human race. Therefore, then, the solution to our sin problem, the solution to our divisions, must extend to all mankind. Right? Therefore, it stands to reason that God's solution... His plan of redemption extends to all of us, to every tribe congregation. You see, you, whether you have a lot of melanin, 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 that is, or you have a, a little, or somewhere in between, whether you speak Japanese or Mandarin or French or German or English or even Hebrew, whether you are from the Pacific Islands, whether you're from Russia, whether you're from Australia, whether you're from the United States, or from Israel, you have a major problem. You have a major problem. You know what your major problem is? It's a problem that's common to all mankind. You and God are at war with one another. You are at war with one another. Have you ever heard people say that? Right? You are an enemy of God. And by the way, God is your enemy. It goes both ways. And I'm going to tell you this, it's not going to turn out very good for you in the end without God's intervention. Without God's plan of redemption. Now, now let me bring this, let me carefully, carefully bring all this together. In Ephesians 2.11, Paul introduces a touchy subject. Very touchy. It's even, at, in some ways, could be offensive. It was offensive to people. The subject was the subject of Jews and Gentiles. Now, you and I, as we sit in this church, as we sit here together today, we I will submit to you, I would argue that we don't completely get this problem. We don't get the complete import of what's happening. We only get a glimpse of it. But what you need to understand is, is that this problem, this subject of Jews and Gentiles in the church, this problem was huge. It was, I would argue, the main struggle of the early church. How do, how do these two groups come together? How do they come together and become one man together? And I want you to understand that, under, that for us to understand this problem has huge repercussions on our understanding of the, of the church and our unity as a body, right? Our unity as a body is, is dependent upon our understanding what God is doing in the church. Now, let me say that we need to be aware, and I think I've already alluded to it, that this letter was written to a primarily Gentile audience, and that I am, and I, I'm very aware that I'm preaching to a primarily Gentile audience. Right? But if we grasp the implications here, if we grasp the massive implications, then we're in a better position to understand what God has accomplished through His Son in reconciling all mankind to Himself. Now, let me be very careful in saying this. I'm not saying that all men will be saved. I don't believe that. 
But I am saying that in the gospel, God has reconciled to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. At the throne, when we are worshiping the Lord, there will be representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he will get all of the glory from it. From the beginning. So what we have to understand is from the beginning, this has been the point of reconciliation. This has been God's worldwide solution. Now let me give you a quick review of chapter 2 up to this point to get us up to speed in Paul's argument. Now we know from chapter 1 that this is a, that, that we, God is solving a worldwide problem, that he is reconciling to himself a people for his own possession. We know that he is saving those whom he will save, that he is making, that he is, he's making all things new, if you will. He chose us from the foundation of the world. He's predestined us as adoption as sons of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've, in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. We, we know that, that this is a huge, a huge 50,000 foot level picture of what God is doing in the church, or through the church, and in the world. Now in chapter 2 verse 1, Paul reminded them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, and that they had walked according to the course of this world. That they had lived, he's reminding the church at Ephesus that they had lived in the lust of their flesh, just like the rest of the world. In other words, they were dead and utterly lost. They had no hope of salvation. Now, what I want you to see is, is that this parallels Paul's point in starting in verse 11. As we go through verses 11 through 13, I think that you should hear massive echoes from, from verses 1 through 3. In, in, in chapter 2. Now I want you, as, you, as you're as you hearing this, I want you to keep those echoes in mind. Now in these verses, and I'm going to read them in just a moment, in these verses, in, in verses 11 to 13, Paul gives two instructions which contrast your life before and after Christ saves you. First, you must recollect your previous path, and second, you must recognize your present position. Now, you will notice that I have personalized this out. You will notice that I'm speaking to you. Now, what I want you to understand is, is that clearly, Paul is writing to an ancient audience. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to seek to understand what Paul is saying to them, but we're going to try our best, then, once we understand what Paul is saying to them, <coughs> we're going to try our best to bridge the gap and apply these truths to us. Now let me read chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Starting in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated or separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Christ. Now Paul starts this in verse 11, saying, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Now, to understand what Paul is saying in this verse, I want you to, we, I, well, I want us to dig back into history. We're going to dig back into the history of the nations. We need to travel back in time to the book of the beginnings, Genesis. Now, many of you know that I have a great affinity to the book of Genesis, but there's a reason for that. The reason is, is because I believe understanding the book of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, help us make complete sense of this world. If you don't understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's hard to understand what God is doing in this world. If you can't understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if you can't understand the beginning, you certainly won't understand the end. And you won't understand what's going on even today. Now, if you turn to Genesis chapter 11. Again, what, I'm what I want to show you is the history of the nation. In Genesis chapter 11, Abraham's descendants, or not Abraham's descendants, I'm sorry. In Genesis chapter 11, and the descendants of Noah disobeyed God by congregating and attempting to build a city and a tower which would reach the heavens. They desired to make a name for themselves. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, and, and the people at the, the tower that they had built, that's Genesis 11, 6. And he says this, I'm sorry, after 11.6, he says this in 11.6. He says, the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, what we have to understand is, is that God had told them to scatter and cover the face of the earth. He wanted them to fill the earth. That's in in Genesis 9, he says in Genesis 9, 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But what they did is they went to and congregated in one place, and they were one people, and they had the same language, and they began to build this tower, the city, the city in this tower. In verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7, he says this, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, I would argue that God confused their language and scattered them so that they would not be able to easily devise evil and defy God's command to fill the earth. They were, they, together they were able to devise great evil, and they were defying what God had commanded them to do, so he scattered them. He confused their language, and he scattered them. This is where the languages came from. This is where the nations came from. Now, this action completely changed the course of history. I mean, it completely changed the course of history. And, I, and this is what I would argue a crucial time, or a crucial point, that is, in the redemptive timeline. The nations were born at this point. These early nations, you know, what you need to understand is these early nations reflect the worldwide political system that we see even to today. It has impact on what we see today in our political system in the world. Now, what we need to remember is, is that in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator and, he, and they plunged all mankind into sin. We, we've talked about that. 
But God, in His mercy, never intended them to stay in their sinful condition. Amid the tragedy of sin, in Genesis 3.15, God had promised the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. We just say that, as far as the curse is found, right? From that point forward, I believe that there was a messianic expectation. I believe that they that that starting with Adam and Eve, they were looking forward to this, this coming Messiah. Now, I believe, I would argue that 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 at least Eve thought that it would be in her lifetime that she would see this coming Messiah. I, we don't have time to go into that, but I would argue that that she had that expectation that it, that his coming was imminent in her life. But Here's what we need to understand. This Messiah would redeem man and restore him to, the, to paradise where he would dwell with God forever, right? He would restore him back to the garden. But here's the problem. Here's the rub. Now, this is after the flood. but So now they, they, they've congregated and God now has scattered them. The problem is that they couldn't understand one another. And if they were scattered in different groups or nations over the face of the earth, where would this Messiah come from? And how would they even, how would this Messiah even be able to communicate with the nations, right? That, I mean, that's a huge problem. It may not seem like a big problem to us now, but that's a huge, that would, be, that would have been a huge issue. They couldn't even, these nations couldn't even cooperate. It wouldn't be long and they would be going to war with one another, right? So given that new situation, how could the good news of this Redeemer be communicated? How could God, or how could man, that is, be restored to his maker? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we see the beginning of the age. And you ever wondered why you had the power and then you had Abraham? Well, that's the answer. I mean, that's the Abraham is the answer. He is the answer. This Messiah would come from Abraham, or at least from his descendants. Specifically, he would come from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, or Israel, whose posterity would become the nation of Israel. Specifically, we see later, he comes from Judah. But there's a whole, whole bunch of history here that we have to skip, but we need to recognize, though, that God made a, his covenant with Abraham, and we need to recognize why God made this covenant. We find out, if you, if you turn over a page to Genesis chapter 12, we find out that God made a covenant with Abraham. He specifically, he promised to give Abraham a, a land to make him a great nation and to bless him. You can remember that by land, seed, and blessing. It's pretty simple. Land, seed, and blessing. That God would give him a land, that he would give him a seed, descendants, and he would bless him. He also says in Genesis, or Genesis 12, 3, that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. Very important covenant in the history of redemption. Now, if you turn over to Genesis 17, we see in verses 1 through 4 that God promises to establish his covenant with, with Abraham, who that's what he was known before. And God said in verse 4, You will be the father of a multitude of nations. Then God renamed him Abraham, which reflects this promise. Now, 
what we need to remember from these verses is that God is reiterating his promise of land, seed, and blessing to Abraham and his descendants. He blessed Abraham's descendants so that they would be a blessing to the nation. Now, I want you to hold on to that, that point. I want you to think through that. I want you to hold on to that. But it's very important that Abraham's descendants, who would become Israel, were, were there to be a blessing to the nations. And then God gives them the sign of his covenant, circumcision. Again, very important because we see this in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Look at verse 10, 17, Genesis 17, 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now these verses go on, but what we see it in is that circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what we have to understand is the, the ultimate purpose of the covenant was that Israel was intended to be a blessing to the nations. In other words, God never intended just to save Israel. He intended for Israel to be the solution to this worldwide problem. This problem of death was a problem for all of mankind. Israel would be that worldwide solution. Now, Fast forward to Ephesians and Paul's time. There was a, a great division, a you might say a great dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Now they became known as Jews, so yeah, Israel, the Israelites, they became known as Jews because they were Judaites, or Jew, tribe of Judah that is. And so they came to the tribe of Judah that became known as Jews later. But so we refer to them as Jews, but in the early times it would have been it would have been Jacob or Israel. They would have been Israelites. But we'll refer, for simplicity's sake, we'll refer to them as the Jews. What I want you to see is there was great disunity. Now, I want you to understand why that disunity existed. As we have seen, God selected the Jews to be his people who would bless the families of the earth. That's what he said to Abraham. They would be a blessing to the nation. Now, in Amos 3.2, God says, You have only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. So Israel was chosen to be a special nation which God had which God selected in his sovereign as a sovereign act of his will. He didn't choose them. What we have to understand is he didn't choose them because they were great. Moses even told them <coughs> as they were standing, they were standing in the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses said this to them. He says, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all. You see, he chose Israel for his own, out of his own sovereignty to show his greatness, to show his own glory. He chose Israel to bring forth the Messiah. He chose them to, to pass along his blessing to the world. It has been said that they were to be a channel, not a bucket. To be a channel, not a bucket. They were to be a mirror which reflected the glory of God to the nations. God always intended to redeem lost man, and he chose to do so through the nation of Israel, through Abraham's descendants. 
and he made them distinct to the world because he wanted the world to look at them and see their differences. He wanted them to be separate. So from the time of Moses, he gave them laws which made them distinct. And incredibly distinct and different from the rest of the world. These laws made them so different that they weren't able to interact with, other, with any other nation. They were so different that the other nations were unable to get along with them because they became, unless they became one of them. So imagine today joining a church which is serious about godliness and why, why, <laughs> so why, let me just, let me get, I'll just skip that part. Why did God make Israel so distinct? That's the question. He did so to call attention to them to keep and to keep them separate from the rest of the world. Now, many of you have read through Leviticus or Deuteronomy. If you study those books, you'll run into some really strict and some even weird laws. Now, these laws strike us as, as weird, but what we realize, what we must realize is that each one of them, each one of those laws had the purpose of making the descendants of Abraham completely different from the nation's Surrounding them. They had strict clothing laws. They had strict dietary laws. They had strict marriage laws. They had strict worship laws, festival laws, custom laws. They had strict land laws. Every law that they had was incredibly strict. And their, their adherence to these laws would have drawn the attention of every nation around them. You see, what I want, want you to understand, and I'm saying a lot to say this, is that the nation of Israel would have been incredibly distinct. It would have been incredibly distinct. If the Israelites followed the laws that God gave them, he, he couldn't live peaceful, peacefully in any other society. That, that's how different they were. He would only fit in among other Israelites. Therefore, as a group, they were so different that the world couldn't help but notice them. Even today, the Jewish people are distinctive, right? Many times you can pick them out of a crowd in just how they carry themselves if you know what you're looking for. God made them unique in every way so that the world would see the difference because he wanted them to stand out to the world. He did this so that the rest of the nations would know their differences and know that their differences were the work of Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. They were distinct from the other people, let me say it this way, they were distinct from the other peoples because their God, Yahweh, was distinct. That's important. They were different because God was different. Or is different. God wanted the nations to look at them and say to themselves, their God is different. Their God has done this thing. Or that thing. That's why it's so important that they were small and insignificant. You see, they, they defied Egypt's Pharaoh against all odds because Yahweh was with them. They were successful in the conquest of the Promised Land because Yahweh was with them. Because He is the one who did it. And He wanted the other people to look at them and say, wow, that's 
these people are different. And the reason they're different and the reason they're doing what they're doing is because Yahweh is wisdom. He wanted them to be a reflection of his glory. In the conquest, the Bible says there were seven nations in the land of Canaan that would be conquered. You see, these seven nations were worshippers of false gods, gods who demanded live human sacrifices to appease them. The, the Canaanites were probably even sacrificing to demons. Their gross immoralities, immoralities were inspired by the worship of demons. So when Israel invaded the land, it was only by God's strength and might that they were able to take it. But what we have to understand is, is that they were completely, completely antithetical, completely different than the people who were there. Completely different than the previous occupants of the land. And they were different from all the nations surrounding them. See, God wanted the other nations to say, their God is different, and it is their God who has done this. And there were times in their history that, God, that the world did say that. They looked at Israel and said, who has a God like the Israelites? I remember, I mean, this is during the, the captivity, what the Nebuchadnezzar said that. Uh, you, during the captivity, when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, some of us read that in the past week or so, right? He praised God, the, the God who had kept the, Daniel safe in the lion's den. I mean, so God did use them at times as a tool for witness. But the most dreadful thing happened. The most dreadful thing happened. Instead of seeing their differences, instead of Israel seeing their differences as a means to be a witness to the nations, to evangelize the nations, they became arrogant. And their differences became their excuse for carnal pride and self-glorification. You see, they had an overinflated view of themselves. And they thought that they were better than the nations which surrounded them. Instead of acknowledging the fact that they were no better outside of what God had done. They were no different. They were, they were the least of the nations. But it was what God had done and what God was doing through them that made them different. But they forgot that. They become prideful. Even the sign of the covenant, circumcision, became one of great pride for them. This is how twisted they have become. They became so twisted that they thought that the this, this sign of the covenant, the sign of what God had done to them, the sign of blessing, and the sign that they were to be a blessing to the nations, they used that as a point of pride. By the time we get to the book of Jonah, we see the pinnacle of the book of pride. God had, God had told Israel through his prophets that he would judge them by sending them into exile. So when God sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, Jonah refused to go. God told him, hey, Jonah, you, go, you get up and go to Nineveh, the great city, Gentile city, right, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. I want you to understand, God didn't even tell Jonah the message. Jonah knew what he was going to do. Jonah knew already what he was going to do, and he refused to go. In his arrogance, Jonah got up to flee from the presence of Yahweh. He went the opposite direction to Tarshish. Here's what we got to have to see. He couldn't stand the thought of another nation receiving blessing from God, especially a wicked Gentile nation. How far had they fallen? How far had they fallen? So he jumped on a boat to Tarshish, and Gentile sailors had to realize that he was a prophet of Yahweh when, they sent a, when he sent a great storm on him, and they dumped him in the sea to save him. 
They had, they had to do it. And God, as you know, sent a large fish and he spit him out, vomited him out in Nineveh, where he should have gone in the first place. And he told him to go preach against the city, that he would destroy the city in, in 40 days. The entire city repented of Jonah's preaching, and God relented just like Jonah knew that he would. Just like Jonah knew that he would. Why well, didn't go? How could God save those wicked Gentiles and judge his own people? That's what, that's what Jonah said. How could he do that? How could he save those wicked people and judge his blessed people? By sending them in there. The thought absolutely angered He could not stand it. Jonah hated them, and his hate reflected the Jews' hate for all the Gentiles. Now, before I go too far, did you know there was no love lost? The Gentiles pretty much detested the Jews as well. Gentile, the Gentile nation saw Israel as slaves. They oppressed them. They persecuted them. They killed them. And the result was incredibly tragic. Instead of being a light to the nations, as, as, as the prophet described, a, a barrier was erected that seemed impenetrable. Now, we understand now, I hope, the whole idea of this division. By Jesus' day, the Jews wouldn't even walk through Gentile territory. There's a place called Samaria, and lays between the south and southern part of Israel and northern areas. The people there, the people in Samaria were Jews that had intermarried with Gentiles, therefore they weren't full-blooded Jews. So when a Jew went from south to north, the most direct route was through Samaria. But instead of going through Samaria, he would cross the Jordan River and go up the east side of the Jordan River and then back over into the areas possessed by Israel. He would never, the Israelite would never, Jew would never step foot in Gentile area. He didn't even want Gentile dirt on Jesus. Think about that. Now back to Jesus to Back to Ephesians 2 11. I think we can better see why in 2 11 why Paul says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is formed in the flesh by human hands. Paul wants the Ephesian church to realize and recollect their previous path. They were Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the Jews, the so-called circumcision. So what I want you to notice is that Paul is careful to say that these are fleshly designations. These were signs of the flesh. They were just like any other fleshly designation such as appearance, culture, or language. As such, they were not spiritual designations. That is, the circumcision versus uncircumcision. But, but, the purpose of the Jews cannot be dismissed. Cannot be dismissed. If you look at John 4, I think we can close the loop on this. We just talked about Samaria, right? 
But I was used to go there. But our Lord did.
is from the Jews. What we have to understand is then that, that Jesus is saying, look, salvation is from the Jews. That, that if, if it weren't for the Jews, you would have no part in God. Then he says in verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is that when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshiper. So there's a time coming, the church age, where we will worship him no matter where we're at. Because we're worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. What I want you to understand is salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah is from the Jews. Notice that, that Jesus says you, do, you worship what you don't know. Clearly, the Gentiles are cut off due to their enmity with the Jews. There is this dividing wall. And that won't work if salvation is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Back in Ephesians 2.12, Paul said, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Paul wanted them to know they had nothing. He wanted, he reminded them that at that time, before Christ saved them, their previous, previous past, and on their previous path, they were separated from the Messiah. They, they had no hope of the Messiah. The, the Gentiles had no hope. They had no Savior. They had no Deliverer. They had no destiny except for experiencing God's wrath. They only had condemnation. They couldn't identify with Him because they did not identify with His people. Because they were cut off from His people. Because they were excluded from, the, from citizenship in Israel. There was this dividing wall, this barrier, this between them and the Jews. Therefore, therefore, they couldn't have, they couldn't get to Israel's God. So they were excluded from his promises. They were excluded from the covenant promises. Remember, Israel was to be a blessing to the nation because of this dividing wall, because of this separation. They, they couldn't have been blessed by Israel. They were excluded from the promises. God had promised Israel land, seed, and blessing, and the Gentiles had no part in this, even though God intended the Gentiles to receive blessing through the Jews. Remember, Jesus said this salvation came through the Jews. Therefore, they had no hope. They had no hope in this world. They had The Gentiles had many gods, but they did not know the one true God, Calvary. Therefore, they were hopeless. And they were godless. They had many gods, but they didn't have the one true God. Well, before God intervened, intervened in your life, this was your story. You were, this was your previous path. You were separated from Christ, the Messiah. You were cut off from His people, the church. You were excluded from the promise of eternal life in Christ. You had no hope. You were hopeless because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were godless. You had your idols and your gods, but you were enemies of the one true God. And outside of what God has accomplished in His Son, you had no hope that any of this would ever change. Now this brings us to the second instruction to contrast your life before and after Christ. This goes quickly. says in verse 13, now Christ Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought 
are neither by the blood of Christ. As we've seen in, in, verses, that, in verses 11 and 12, parallel chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, I hope you've heard and recognized the echoes, right? The separation. The echoes of separation. Now, you should hear the echo from verse 4 to verse 13. Verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Paul goes on to say, now in verse 15, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, God in Christ, God in the Messiah, has closed the gap. He has closed this gulf that existed. There was no hope, but now you have hope that, that God has been rich in mercy and He's brought you near by the blood of Christ. Beloved, this was all accomplished by God in His gospel, through His gospel. He has brought you and I near in the blood of Christ. He has placed us into His body, the church, and we represent Christ as His body. We are now distinct from the world and and, and this distinction doesn't come from how we dress, though we are to dress modestly. It doesn't come in our appearance, though we are to appear as lights to this world. It doesn't come and, and show itself in our race. Look around, you should see people from all different cultures and backgrounds in this church. Beloved, it should be known, not because of those questions. Not because of those questions. We should be known for our righteous lives. We should be known for our unity. We should be known for our love for one another. I said earlier, I brought up the whole racial issue. Beloved, there should be no racial issue in the church. Because of all people in this world, we should understand there are no races. They don't exist. There's one, there's one race, the human race. We are to live distinct from the world. Harmony Jones, I, I've used this quote before, but I think it's a great one. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts. <coughs> so yeah, the, the church, by and large, if you go out and you look around, the church is trying to look like the world. We don't need to look like the world. We need to look like the church. We need to look like the righteous. We need to be different, distinct. There needs to be unity in our diversity. When we stand before his throne, we'll stand there as every tribe, tongue, and nation. We've been brought near by the, the blood of Christ. Listen to the Apostle John in Revelation 7. He says this. After these things I look and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in the white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a large or loud voice that is saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to In this age, the church age, we'll call it, and it's God's 
worldwide solution for redeeming mankind to itself. The world tries to replicate what God is doing. You know that we are the world mantra, right? You've heard it. But true unity, starting with Jew and Gentile, starts and ends with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the very unity of Thank you. 